Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Dubbed the Queen of Crime, Val McDermott has written 35 books, she thinks, she's stopped counting, sold over 17 million copies, and been translated into 40 languages. She's created countless female sleuths, but is probably best known for one of her male ones, Dr. Tony Hill of the TV series Wire in the Blood. She also created Traces, the BBC series aired earlier this year, starring Martin, Line of Duty, Compstant. Now 65, she's gone back to her youth. In her new book, 1979, Val explores what it was like to be a young female journalist in the male-dominated tabloid newsrooms of the late 70s. And she should know, because she was that hack. They realised that uh, I was probably worth keeping on. It was also slightly embarrassing for them because I won the National Trading Journalist of the Year Award. Yes. At 16, she became the first ever state school-educated pupil from Scotland to go to St Hilda's College, Oxford. Val lives not far from me in Edinburgh, so she popped around to hang out with Sausage the Cat and chat about being a young lesbian in a man's world, anger, ageing, and discovering an unexpected cure for hot flushes. I love this. Does it ever get easier, the kind of book publication process? Publication process, I suppose, it varies from book to book, really. I mean, this one's been completely full on because it's the start of a new series. It's moving in a new direction. And also, I think, because we've had 18 months of lockdown and everybody's excited to have something to talk about. The basic process is still pretty much the same. The proofs go out, people start reacting, you'll do some media, and then the book comes out, and then you've got the nail-biting waiting for how the actual people who've parted with money to buy the book feel about it. That's where the word of mouth begins. But I still get the same thrill, that moment when the proof lands, and you actually hold it in your hand for the first time. That's still really exciting. That's the first time it feels like a book, even now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it book 35? 
God, I'm counting. You've got to the point where you don't as count well, anymore. As, yeah, it depends how you count as well. I mean, I've written things other than crime fiction. I mean, I did the Northanger Abbey book and oh, yeah, I've done, I did a kid's book and I've done a couple of non-fiction and I've done selections of short stories. So, yeah, this will be 35. So I don't, I don't, I don't do the sums very often. The children's book with my granny as a pirate, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Loved that. I, I say to people, of course, that's non-fiction. <laughs> totally. Tell me a bit about Ali Burns then. Ali Burns is going to be the protagonist of five novels, starting in '79 and running at ten-year intervals till we get to what I think of as the last year of normal life in 2019. And she starts off as a journalist in 1979, where she's working for a Scottish tabloid newspaper. And this is her first real job in the spotlight, and she's determined to make an impact. She wants to be an investigative journalist. She has a certain idealistic view that working people deserve newspapers papers that are informative as well as entertaining, which is something she shares with me. Essentially, this is a story about Ali trying to get by in what is a very masculine, kind of misogynist, homophobic, racist, sectarian world, and to take the first steps on the career she wants to have. So she encounters various stories that she can pursue. As a woman in the late 1970s on a newsroom, she gets consigned to Miracle Babies and, and Fluff, really. Weather Story. I, just, I did the Weather Story myself more times than I can count in the late 1970s. I, I once on a day when there was really no weather, wrote a story essentially saying, the 939 from Cockbridge to Tom and Towel is open. Drive it quickly while you can. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of nonsense. And there were only three women on the staff and the news staff on the Daily Record when I was there. And we were not allowed to be on shift together because the general view was that if you had women on shift together, they would just sit about and gossip. Oh, but when men yeah. sit around and talk about football, yeah. it's not gossip. No, that's important, that's manly important. things. So yes. it, it was a strange place. It was a strange world to be working in. And Ali inhabits that world. And she's not me. She's very definitely not me. She's a very different personality from me. But I gave her some of the trappings of my life and quite a lot of the anecdotage. I was listening to a podcast this morning I can't remember which one you started telling a story about a death knock with four lads who died in a car crash and I was thinking hang on I read this yesterday <laughs> <laughs> yes it's in the book yeah. yeah a lot of the anecdote is mine that was the very first job I got when I joined the daily record staff I came to the record from a very sort of indirect route because I was a trainee on the mirror group training scheme which was two years uh, before the mast in local papers in Devon doing all sorts of things like council meetings and magistrates courts and then the deal was with the mirror group that if you did pasture exams you got an attachment on one of their national papers and I chose the record. And almost nobody went to the record from the middle group training scheme. So for a start, they didn't really know what to do with somebody who'd come through the graduate training scheme. They didn't really know what to do with a woman. They didn't really know what to do with somebody who'd been to Oxford. I think they were trying to find reasons for not keeping me on after the six weeks attachment because the deal was if you did well in your attachment, you got kept on. Mm. And if you didn't, you just got cast adrift. So day one, I turned up for my day shift and uh, I was sent down to Ayrshire to collect pictures and interviews with the families of four dead teenage boys who'd been in a car crash the they night before. They thought that would finish you off. They thought, they thought I wouldn't be able to do it. They thought they could reduce me to failure on the first day and I proved them wrong conclusively. And they did everything they could in those first six weeks to make me want to go. Is They didn't put me on the regular rota. They just told me day to day what shift I was on. So I'd go from a day shift at nine o'clock in the morning and start to a night shift at seven at night and it finished at four o'clock in the morning well, and then I'd be on back. the day shift. Yeah, back to back. It just shifted me around. I'd be day shift, night shift, day shift. The news desk said, oh, it's just whatever we need you. As I said, really, they were trying to push me out the door. 
And grudgingly, I think, after about a month of this, they realised that uh, I was probably worth keeping on. It was also slightly embarrassing for them because I won the National Trading Journalist of the Year Award. Yes. And part of my prize was being sent off to interview Prince Charles. So they'd have looked a bit stupid if they dumped me at that point. So I got kept on and I was there for a couple of years. But it was hard work to keep your head above water in that environment. Uh, And I'd be fortunate or, or unfortunate in some senses that I have a substantial capacity for drink so I could hold my own in the pub which was another key measure of success Mm. Uh, could you go to the pub and and keep drinking at the pace they drank which I could offices back then I mean even 10 years later in the late 80s you know smoking drinking long lunches the management basically reluctantly conceded that reporters were going to go out and drink so if they wanted us to go out and do the job they were going to have to deal with the fact that we'd be getting behind the wheel of the car after five pints at lunchtime and so at the record we had a fleet of editorial cars and editorial drivers so you didn't have to bother staying sober you could go to the pub and have your i don't know four or five pints five whiskies at lunchtime and you'd have someone to drive you about which sounds like luxury but it's just expediency yes yes it was very much a drinking culture one of my colleagues had sent for his annual medical and the doctor running him through the questions and saying and what do you drink and my colleague said what have you got <laughs> and it wasn't joking. So yeah, it was a strange world. Even then, I mean, I I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, and even then, I, I guess I was stoking this up as possible material for the future. What was it that made you say, "Are you one of those people who's like, you tell me I can't, I'll show you I can"? It's partly that, and it's partly because I couldn't think of anything else to do. I mean, the reason I became a journalist in the first place was because I just couldn't think of where else I could fit in. You know, I remember going around the careers fair at university and looking at all these jobs and thinking, that's boring, or that I'd do my head in after a week. I've never been very good at, at um, you know, the kind of hierarchies that are sort of firmly defined. You know, this is your line manager, and this is his line manager, or her line manager, and then it's all the way up to the top. And you're at the bottom, so you do what you're told. And I get bored very easily as well, and I didn't want to do this kind of job where you it's the same thing every day basically and journalism seemed to me to be the only thing that might just fit the bill at one point my tutor suggested that I should try for the diplomatic and I howled with laughter like a hyena <laughs> can you imagine how many wars would be in now <laughs> get a fucking grip <laughs> uh, journalism for me was really the only feasible home that I could think of also in many ways it was the golden age of working in newspapers, although yeah, for a woman it was really difficult. I was very poorly paid as a trainee journalist. When I went to the record, my salary doubled overnight. Yeah, our salaries climbed steadily in a time when for a lot of people that wasn't happening at all. And by the time I quit in 91, I, I was Northern Bureau Chief of a national newspaper. I had a substantial salary. I had a company car. I had an expense account. I had a newspaper allowance. I carpeted my homes with the newspaper allowance. <laughs> I used to let it stack up and claim it quarterly. Um, oh, sorry, my brain just flatlined then. That's a menopause thing. I've forgotten what I was going to ask you. God, that is so annoying. Do you do that? Yes. My partner's just coming out of the menopause. And, and when we were in New Zealand, made a really fascinating discovery. She'd been having various symptoms. And we'd been in New Zealand for about a month and she said, I've not been having the same menopause symptoms at all. And she mentioned it to a colleague of hers who's a medic. And he said, have you been drinking the beer? And uh, apparently New Zealand IPA in particular, they use a particular New Zealand hop. And they don't pasteurise the beer, so it's very high in what's called phytoestrogens. And this uh, has has an effect, obviously. You're drinking beer that has all these phytoestrogens in. Research has been done, but of course, 
It's only been done into the effect on men growing men boobs. Oh, for God's sake! So I mean, and, and he said he said to her, if there's sufficient phytoestrogens to make men develop boobs, there's probably enough phytoestrogens in there to combat the effects of the menopause. So um, you know. So you're shipping it back. Now. Well, you can't they can't they can't export it because it's not pasteurised. So oh. that's another a good reason for menopausal women to go to New Zealand. Yes. Just another bloody thing that's excellent about New Zealand. Yeah. God. So are you and Joe, your partner, roughly the same age? No, she's quite a bit younger than me. So how was yours? Almost insignificant, really. The only thing I suffered from was really, really heavy periods for about three years. Um, I mean, insanely heavy. But uh, apart from that, I had these strange head sweats. My head would break out in yes. sweat. Just my head. Yes. Um, I mean, to give the sweat was dripping off the back of my hair, yeah. and it would last for about five minutes, and then just stop. And there was no particular stimulus for it; it just happened, and then stopped. Thankfully, oh, I get that. But, I mean, I've got a lot of hair. If I go for a walk, I come back, my top half of my body will be drenched. Yeah. I was going to say I don't get hot flushes anymore, but I still get that. No, I never had that. Fortunately, I was lucky. Really lucky because my mum had a really, really tough menopause. So I completely feel I dodged a bullet there. Were you aware of that? You weren't living with her at the time? Yeah, I was. If she had an early menopause, she she was only in her 30s when she... She started going into the menopause and she didn't have me till she was, I was, she was 31. So most of when I was a teenager, she was spending chunks of time just taking to her bed because she just was so ill. Um, and yeah. It's interesting that you were aware of it because a lot of people say that they weren't aware of their mm-hmm. mum's having it, but I guess she was that ill. Yeah, she had a tough time of it. As I say, I feel I really dodged that bullet. You really did. Mm. To go back to you and Ali and that. So you grew up in Fife and then you were, is this right, you were the first state school educated pupil to go to Oxford? Not to Oxford, to St Hilda's. To St Hilda's. Yeah, there'd been people before me at, at, at the wider university, but I was the first one that St Hilda's had ever seen. <laughs> Did they know what to do with you? I think they were a bit taken aback. I was only 16 when I went for my interview because I'd skipped a year going up to high school and uh, the principal said to me, we've never taken anyone from a Scottish state school before. <laughs> And, you know, I was 16 and brass-necked, I suppose. And I just said, well, it's about time you started. <laughs> you know, she said, you're very young. How would you feel about taking deferred entry and, and coming back a year later? And for me at that age, deferred entry, there was, we didn't do gap years back then. I mean, no. there was another year of working in the station hotel, which frankly I didn't think would further my academic credentials. So I just shrugged and said, well, I'll go someplace else. I'm not wasting a year. And I think they were just so stunned they offered me a place. What were you like as a kid in Fife? Were you in the gang or were you like a... I was a bit Norman No Mates and a bit Bucky. Were you that girl? Yeah, I was a bit Bucky, but I was also quite sporty and musical as well. So you know, I played hockey. I was in the first 11. I played guitar. I did a lot of stuff at the folk club and folk singing and things like that. But also I was, I think, a bit of an outsider. And part of that was circumstantial. As I used to spend weekends, much of my school holidays, with my grandparents who lived in East Weems, which was eight miles away, which you know might as well be on the other side of the planet when you're a kid. So I had the slightly strange experience of, during the week, I'd be going to school with the kids who lived in my street and nearby. And then at the weekends, I'd be with a whole other bunch of kids who had their school relationships. And then I'd, I'd turn up for the weekends. So I never quite fitted in in either place. I always felt slightly on the outside, wherever I was. And also I read, I read voraciously. Uh, when I was separated from Kirkcaldy Central Library for any length of time, I felt bereft. You know, they didn't have a library in East Weems. They just had the library bus that came around on Mondays that I wasn't allowed to enter 
because I didn't live there. Oh, uh, nice. It was like this was a child with a face pressed up to the glass <laughs> looking at the books and thinking, I don't want a book. But indirectly, it did me a favour because my grandparents were not readers. But for some reason, they had a copy of Agatha Christie's The Murder at the Vicarage. You know, linguistic scientists tell us you can read Christie with a reading age of about eight or nine. So from about eight, I think, eight or nine, I was definitely reading The Murder at the Vicarage every time I ran out of something to read. And so <laughs> I, was, I, was imprinted. I was imprinted. You put a duck with a family of kittens that grows up thinking it's a cat or whatever. Yeah. I grew up thinking that grown-up books had to have dead bodies in them. Yeah, it was destiny. Yes. So when you went to Oxford, you said, I think it was probably on Desert Island Discs, you said, when I went to Oxford, I fell in love with me, which I really liked. Can you tell me a bit about that? I kind of found myself there. I kind of felt all right being me. I, I spent most of my teens feeling that I just didn't fit and I didn't have a name to put on it. I thought it was because I wanted to be a writer that that made me different. You know, I had the, the Graham Greene, you have to have a splinter of ice in your heart kind of thing and, and, and have that detachment. But really, the reason that I felt like an outsider was because of my sexuality, because I was I was a lesbian and I had no way of understanding that. There were not lesbians when I was growing up in Fife. You didn't, I mean, you had these vague rumours of, of these things called lesbians, but nobody had ever seen one or, or knew one. You know, it was always somebody's cousin once met somebody that thought they might know one, you know. Did um, you have that thing where there were like two maths teachers who lived together, but they were just good friends? Yeah. Because we yeah. had those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the gym teacher and the maths teacher and two of the librarians who definitely lived together were just good friends. But also, I mean, there was a tradition that had started after the First World War of there not being enough men to go around. And so there was a pattern of spinsters sharing accommodation because two can live as cheaply as one. And that hadn't quite disappeared by the 60s. It was still a kind of valid notion that two women might well live together because it was cheaper than being by yourself. And there was certainly no other kind of template for being a lesbian. There was really no lesbian fiction to speak of. No. Part of the well of loneliness, and that wouldn't really make <laughs> you feel like you wanted to be a lesbian. And there was no images of lesbians in, in movies or on the television or, you know, in the papers even, you know. There were sort of strange allusions to strange women. Yeah. But in the 60s when I was a you know, teenager, it didn't exist. So for me, the template of emotional life was straight because there wasn't anything else. It also, I, I think there's a thing that's complicated for young girls, young women, because when you're a teenage girl, your emotional relationships are centred in your friendships. Teenage girls have very intense emotional relationships. I mean, you read someone like Megan Abbott and yeah. her novel, you completely understand the intensity of those relationships. I mean, it's like the boyfriends are almost incidental. There's a performance of going out with and being in love with. And so it didn't seem odd to me that my emotional attachments were all centred on my female friends. And, you know, you went out with lads and that was fine. It wasn't unpleasant. Um, <laughs> for me, there was always a sense of, is that, is that it? It was like Peggy Lee, you know, is that all there is? And so I guess for me, when I went to Oxford, that was where I found me, really. In the process of three years at Oxford, someone gave me a copy of Sexual Politics, Kate Millett. And that was like a, a bomb exploding inside my head. It was a book about feminism, but it was also about literary criticism, which was the world that I was inhabiting on a daily basis. And it completely transformed the way that I looked at what I was reading and the way I looked at my life. And it was so exciting. The excitement of that moment was just remarkable. And I spent the weekend reading this book and I went into my tutorial the next week, absolutely overflowing 
glowing with excitement. And my tutor, Anne Elliott, lovely woman, but, but sort of, I suppose by that point, she must have been in her 50s. And she had sort of, you know, brilliant white hair and a perfect chignon. She was always perfectly, immaculately turned out. And she was Christian. She specialised in Spencer and Sydney. And she was very proper. She was ferociously bright. And she had her own little rules. You know, she wouldn't open the sherry bottle until the six o'clock tutorial. Yeah. She wouldn't smoke until the six o'clock tutorial. So I always went for the six o'clock tutorial. Yeah, totally. So I went in and I, for 10 minutes, I just held forth about, I'd read this book and how amazing it was and how extraordinary it cast a new facet on, on all that I was reading. And, and she listened, nodded patiently and said, and then she said, oh, yes, dear Kate. Like, what? 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 And it turned out she had been Kate Millett's supervisor for the PhD thesis that turned into sexual politics. And that just about blew my head off in a different oh, kind of way, God, thinking, yeah. I wish I'd been a fly on the wall for those tutorials, for those supervisions, because yeah. they must have been extraordinary and explosive. And she was someone who would argue her corner very, very clearly and clinically, but she did not shy away from difficult discussion. I once had a three-hour tutorial with her about King Lear because she wouldn't give an inch on the Christian interpretation of King Lear and I wouldn't give an inch on my interpretation of the tragedy of Cordelia's inability to express love and Lear's inability to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) So I just can only imagine what it was like, a tutorial between Anne Elliot and Kate Millett. Amazing. But that, as I've said before, that led me to the feminists and the feminists led me to the lesbians and the rest is is history and how how my life changed. Really? You were a young woman working on the Daily Record, but you were also a young lesbian working on the Daily Record. How was that? Um, I mean, were you out? Were you? I was out and in, if you you see. I mean, I I was entirely out in my private life, but if somebody asked me straight out, then I would tell them. And sometimes people would just laugh and say, no, you're not, you're just making that up. (laughs) Because, of course, what you would make up is I'm a lesbian. You're just making that up, so we'll leave you alone. Yeah, just doing it to wind you up, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Mind you, it probably would have worked. Yeah, well, I mean, for all the kind of underlying levels of misogyny, I didn't really face outright hostility. People were not horrible to me because I was a woman. They spent most of the time being baffled. Like, why is a woman wanting to do this? Why would a woman want to be here? Why would a woman want this life? What's, you know, surely there must be something else she could do. Maybe you could get a job on the women's page. It wasn't hostility. It was just that this is not the sort of thing you should be doing. Just a complete lack of understanding yeah. of why you would want to do it rather mm-hmm. than... Yeah. It's so weird, isn't it? You said that you felt like you needed not to be in Scotland in the late 60s and 70s. You know, by the time I, I did two years at Daily Record, I, I thought, I can't have the kind of life here that I want to have as an out lesbian. It's not possible for all sorts of reasons. There really wasn't a very flourishing gay culture in Glasgow in the late 1970s. It was still illegal for men to be gay, which is another explanation of why there wasn't really a flourishing open gay culture. It was very difficult to meet other gay people, particularly to meet other lesbians who had anything in common with. You know, I had friends who were living down south, particularly in Manchester, and I thought, this is somewhere that I can have the kind of life I want to have. And I'm going to be hogtied at every turn if I try to have that kind of life here in Scotland. So I have to go. A job came up at the Sunday People. I was I was kind of headhunted for it. And I went off to Manchester thinking, OK, well, let's give this a shot and see if that's any better. And it was indeed better in so many ways. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what point did you move back? It wasn't that long ago, was it? Late 2013, beginning of 2014. Do you think kind of Val then, the Val who moved to Manchester, could have imagined the world of Scotland as it is no, now? absolutely not. I mean, it's transformed. When I came back to Scotland in 2014, it had just been voted the most friendly place to be gay in Europe, you know, uh, which was something I could certainly not have imagined when I was, you know, sort of 24, heading off to Manchester with my red spotted handkerchief on a stick. (laughs) You know, um, I never felt at home in England, though. I never felt this is my country. I know a lot of people will find that a very odd thing, but it just didn't feel like home to me. It was a different politics, a different history, a different culture, different speech. Even yeah. you know, I mean, when I went to Oxford, nobody understood what I was saying because I come from fighting. I taught it that can. Yeah, and I've still taught it that when I come back to fit when I'm talking to folks for Kirkcaldy because that's I'm not talking down to them, but it's just the way I talk. But hearing that tongue in my head makes all the difference to me. Yeah, you don't uh, have, to have to speak. I suppose English, Scottish. Yeah. I was of the generation who we were always told off at home and at school for speaking in Scots. And I love that it has become respectable again. Now, certainly in literary terms, because the great difficulty we have is rendering it on the page because it's always been a spoken language. And the literature of Scottish writers has, by and large, in modern times, you want to get past people like Dunbar and Barber and to a degree Burns, it's been written in English. So we don't have access to the same written language. So that makes it slightly more difficult to communicate in Scots. Because uh, three of us will spell the same word in completely different ways or have a slightly different word. Because, you know, like Doug Johnson's got this great series of novels featuring a family of three generations of women who are undertakers and private eyes, and they're called the Skelfs in his books. That means a splinter in Edinburgh. But in Fife, we called it a skelb. So it doesn't have the same resonances for me. So there's all these these things to balance. But yeah, the language was different. And, uh, I've never uh, yeah. read him. What are they called, for, those books? Doug Johnson's oh, The, the book. first one's called A, a Dark Matter. A Dark Matter. I'll have to check it out. Then it's uh, The Big Sleep. And then it's The Great Silence. It was really good. Sold. Why do you think the Scots crime writing scene is such a thing? Because 
I don't think it's a coincidence that William Appelvani wrote Laidlaw at a time when Scotland was talking about devolution, about a devolved parliament, and thinking about who are we, what kind of country are we, what kind of country do we want to be, trying to define ourselves not in opposition to the English. And Laidlaw came along at a time when we were starting to ask those questions about ourselves, and it is such an absolutely archetypal Scotland of its place and time novel. Willie demonstrated that you could write a novel set in working class Scotland where people had the speech rhythms of the streets and it sounded and read like here and now in Scotland and you could use the crime novel to tell a story about modern Scotland. Nobody had done that before. With any kind of literary movement you just need somebody to open the door a wee bit and then the next little wave pushes it open a bit further and that was kind of me and Ian Rankin ten years later being excited and inspired by McIlvany and wanting to write about modern Scotland, want to write about the country that we inhabited and that we loved. There are very particular elements of, of Scottish writing in general that are well fitted to the crime novel. That interest in the kind of doppelganger that you get mm. going back to like James Hogg and uh, Robert Lee Stevenson, that also has what, um, what Hugh McDermott called the Caledonian anti-syzygy. So that yoking together of two opposing forces. On the one hand, you've got Calvinism, and on the other hand, you've got the sort of Gaelic music and dance and laughter. And the tensions of those two can occupy the same space in our novels, but also they are shot through with the kind of black humour, which is what you need after centuries of being a poor working class country to survive. The Scots have always been able to, to laugh in the face of adversity and laugh at the rich and powerful, at the pompous. We've always been good at taking the piss. <laughs> if you look at the work of Robert Burns, our national bard, much of it is taking the piss out of other people that are higher up or think they're higher up the social scale than he is. Those traditions, I think, all come together in the Scottish crime novels. Did you set out to write crime? Were you inspired to do that? Initially, I was going to write great literary fiction, you know, because you come down from Oxford at 20 and you think, I'm going to write the great English novel. And I tried to write the great English novel. And I mean, the one thing I'll say is that I finished that first, first draft of my first attempt, but it was terrible. I sent it off to lots of publishers and they pretty much sent it back by return of post. And I ended up adapting it for the stage. I wrote it as a play. An actor friend of mine read it and said, I don't know much about books, but I think this is a good play. It's very dramatic. And I crossed out all the descriptions, left the dialogue in, and left the local theatre with it. And the director there said, I'm looking for new plays for a season I want to do in the studio theatre of new writers and this is great oh, it's perfect I'd love to do this so entirely by accident I was a professionally performed playwright at 23 and I thought well that's it I'm going to be the new Harold Pinter or you know, possibly the new Tom Stoppard and of course I was not destined for that route mostly because I didn't know what I was doing I didn't understand the mechanics of writing a play I'd had absolutely accidental beginner's luck Right, so you just kind of fallen on the right pattern yeah. rather than knowing what you were. Yeah. yeah, and I tried to replicate this and I couldn't. And I just kept writing these really terrible plays. And after a couple of years of this, my agent fired me because I wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't making him any money. So that was that. And uh, I still had this burning conviction that I was going to be a writer. I had realised by then the problem I had with writing plays was that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And maybe I should return to prose and that I should go with something that I did understand. But I'd always read crime fiction ever since that first addictive encounter with Agatha Christie. And so I thought, I'll give it a try. I kind of know how that works. I was thinking about what I could write. And at the time, there really was The Village Mystery and The Police Procedural. And I didn't really think I could do either of those. And then someone sent me a copy of Sarah Paretsky's first novel, Indemnity Only. And I read that and I thought, yes, this is the kind of book I want to write. Female protagonist, brain and sense of humour, 
agency. It doesn't have to call the guys in whenever things get difficult. And also, something that was really important to me was that the book was, in a, in a sort of way, it was kind of site-specific. The crimes happened there because of the kind of city Chicago is, because of the kind of jobs people do, the kind of lives they lead. And it wasn't just some random murder bolted onto some random village in England. And that excited me. I thought, this is possible. This is this is plausible. And that seemed to me to be something I, I could do. And it also had politics, personal politics, and it had a wider sense of politics as well. And I thought, maybe one day I'll be able to write something like this. So I sat down and started to write the report for murder. And the rest is history. Yeah. Oh, and here you are. Do you ever feel like putting your feet up? What would I do all day? Yeah. Yes, the ideas are not going to go away and leave me alone. So as long as I can forge the ideas into some sort of narrative shape and it works, then I'll keep going. And I trust my team to tell me when I reach the point where, you know, frankly, this is shite. <laughs> what do you think they'd dare? I hope they would, yeah. I've been with my agent, Jane Gregory, for more than 30 years now. It's longer than most marriages last. Yeah. My editor is not afraid to say, I don't think this element is working. But the conversation that we have together usually allows me to find a way through to make it better. And that, for me, is what the best kind of editorial relationship is. Where It's a collaboration where she puts her finger and goes, it's not really working for me. And then I work out how to fix it. Have you always been quite sort of true to yourself or is that something that's developed as you've as you've got older? I don't know. I'd like to think I have. I mean, I've always been bullshy. Yeah. I mean, through the years I've, I've tried to stick up for what I thought was important. I mean, when I was a journalist, I was a union official. When I was an undergraduate, I was JCR president. Again, more out of a pragmatic desire to try and make things better for the life of people who actually lived in college than for any kind of great ideological Thing. But I guess I've tried to identify the things that I think are important and prioritise them. Probably haven't always succeeded. I mean, sometimes I've probably been a completely useless bitch, but there you go. <laughs> Have you got more or less angry as you've got older? Oh, I think I've probably got more angry because there's an awful lot to be angry about. This Westminster government, honest to God, it's jaw-droppingly corrupt. It's jaw-droppingly cronyist. It's just, honest to God, you couldn't make this stuff up. And then on the wider world stage, you know, we've got the news today from Afghanistan. And those, yeah, those poor women who had just clawed a place in life for themselves, education, jobs, just being told, go home, don't come out your houses. You're not going to drive a car. You're not going to have a job. You're not going to get your university degree. Just go away and shut up. It's like The Handmaid's Tale, isn't it? It is just awful. So, yeah, there's an awful lot to be angry about. I get very angry about uh, politics that centres around exclusion. I want a politics that's inclusive, that's open, that brings people into the tent. I want an independent Scotland without sorting everything out before we become independent because I want an independent Scotland that then makes decisions about the country it wants to be. Once we've got independence, we can make decisions for ourselves about the kind of country we want to be. We can't fix everything before we have the power to fix everything. So why do we spend our time arguing about things we can't fix now? It just seems pointless to me. I've always been about um, inclusivity. I can remember the politics of the 80s, uh, like Section 28, and people going like, uh, we don't want lesbians near our daughters when they're getting changed. We don't want lesbians anywhere near our children because they'll corrupt them. We don't want gay men teaching our choir. We don't want gay men in the same rugby team as our sons. I mean, 
I remember that time and how insulting and threatening it felt to be othered in that way. And I don't want to other other people like that. You know, no. I don't always agree with them. Yeah. But I would rather have them in the tent to have the discussion. That's yeah. how you fix things. You don't fix it by shouting at each other on Twitter. No, I mean, it definitely does feel like we've gone back to that othering. Mm. And I don't like it. I don't want to be part of that. No. I'm going to ask you now the questions that I always ask. What's your emotional age? <laughs> um, probably, I mean, I think my emotional age is probably about 32. I sort of felt I've got things kind of straight in my head. I felt like um, I'd come to terms with an awful lot of things. I had a sense of understanding what was important to me and what was important in the world. It's also a year when quite big things happened in my life. My dad died very suddenly. 10 days before my first novel was published. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of a lot of emotional processing went on round about that time. For me, that was a real sort of coming together of, of a lot of things that shaped a lot of, of, of what I've done subsequently. Really interesting. Is there like one book that you regularly push on people? One book I do push on people quite a lot is maybe slightly unexpected. It's Emma Smith's This Is Shakespeare. Yeah, that's it's, slightly unexpected. It's a book that um, looks at Shakespeare from a very different angle. You don't have to know really anything at all much about Shakespeare. It's not for scholars. It's not an academics book. It's a book that's just as applicable to people who haven't read Shakespeare and want to know what all the fuss is about as it is to people who are familiar with it. And she looks at Shakespeare from what she calls the gappiness, the things that he doesn't waste time telling us, the spaces in the plays that allows them to be relevant to different times and places. And she uses the method of saying, what's the question we should ask about this play? And what's the question it asks of us? And she uses that to explore so many aspects of our lives, gender, sexuality, politics, race. And I find it absolutely fascinating. It's a very easy read, but it's got a lot of big thoughts in it. If you have any seriousness about writing any kind of fiction at all, you need to be examining the issues that drive the wedges between us and our society, that build us together as a society. And I think this is a really great book for teaching us an awful lot about ourselves and for setting hairs running in your head. That's really fascinating. If you applied that, what's the question we should be asking about this and what's the question it's asking us to 1979? What would they be? Oh, God, I don't know. So what does it tell us about 2021? I hadn't realised... It was going to be the first of five books. And then I think I read a piece in The Scotsman that said it, that they were going to run 1979 through 2019. I think it's such an interesting idea. Quite challenging, but it'd be really interesting to look at. It's madly hubristic. (laughs) All the best ideas are. (laughs) What one piece of advice would you give younger women? Try to be yourself. Even when it just seems impossible, the alternative is horrible. The alternative makes you feel even worse than the put-downs you get for trying to be yourself. What time did you learn that? How old were you when you learned that? Probably in my early days in newspapers, but even before I went to, to the record. The thing about being a journalist is you have to be a chameleon to a certain extent. When you're out on the job, you have to fit in with the people you're trying to interview. You have to make them love you enough mm. to, to confide in you. But back in the office, dealing with your colleagues, dealing with news desks, if you try to pretend to be something you're not, you will be very quickly found out. And that's not good. It makes your life difficult, but it also makes you feel like shit. Is there an old woman who inspires you? I have a very good friend who just celebrated her 90th birthday. And she was uh, she was married to my old English teacher and they, were, they became great 
friends. And she herself worked in education. She was a head teacher in primary schools in Fife. And she was somebody who essentially came from quite a sort of douce, genteel background in North Berwick. And she went into these primary schools that were in really rough parts of Fife, you know, mining villages in Fife. And by the time she left, I think the people of Kennaway wanted to build up a statue to her. You know, she was amazing. She was an amazing teacher. She was an amazing woman. And she still is. You know, she's 90 and she's still going strong. She's great company. She still loves reading, although she can't read anymore. She has to just listen on an audiobook or magnify things hugely on her iPad. (laughs) But she's active and her mind is active. She has a big heart. And I would quite like to grow old in that sort of slightly disgraceful way that she has. She still pretends to be awfully genteel, but really there's another side to her that's quite wicked. And I would quite like to be wicked into my 90s. I think you might pull that off. Well, we'll see. She's a lot less grumpy than me. (laughs) (laughs) I think a bit grumpy is allowed. Mm, Good. (laughs) What's your superpower? My superpower is my ability to make an infinite amount of cheese disappear. (laughs) My kind of woman. <laughs> Don't uh, leave me alone with the cheese board. <laughs> Lastly, how many fucks do you give? <laughs> none. None? Not a single one. Definitively none? Definitively none. Excellent. Cute. Not even a flying one. Not <laughs> I feel I've kind of reached a point where I don't have to. You absolutely have. You're the queen of crime. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. That was excellent. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.